Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Not only this is Sports Talk Mississippi, this is 2019. We are glad to have you along as we begin a new year on Super Talk Mississippi. Sports Talk Mississippi brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Online at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. As you begin a new year, are you thinking about the purchase of a piece of property in North Mississippi? If you are, well, then Mississippi Land Bank is where you need to start that process. They've been financing land for now over 100 years. Fantastic people. You can find branch locations near you online at their website, mslandbank.com. You can also grab the phone number. Probably don't want to call today. I think they're off today on New Year's Day, but uh, you can give them a call tomorrow, this week, next week, later in the month, and uh, talk to them about what it is that you need, and they will be glad to help. Richard Cross, Michael Borky in the studio, and on the Farm Bureau phone line, you can check out favorites.com and go with the home team coming to us from beautiful, warm Tampa, Florida, Brian Haydad. Final in the Outback Bowl, Iowa wins 27-22 over Mississippi State. We'll get into the numbers, into the breakdown. Uh, Mississippi State outgains Iowa. They hold Iowa to negative rushing yards in the game, but lose this one by five. Tough one to swallow for the Bulldogs today, hey, Dad. Yeah, you mentioned the weather down here, and it feels sort of like you know September would feel in Mississippi. Well, that's sort of fitting because Mississippi State played like the end of September here uh, in Tampa today. They, they they reverted back to those those games they had against uh, Kentucky and Florida offensively. Really couldn't get anything going. Squandered another great performance uh, from the defense, and like you said, fall to eight and five in Joe Moorhead's uh, debut season. And the roller coaster of, of emotion continues to sway for Joe Moorhead. A guy who you know had a lot of people in his corner after that Egg Bowl win. Uh, today, there's a lot of disappointment among the MSU fan base. Um, normally, after a ball game, you do a post-game periscope where people are allowed yeah. to ask you questions, kind of give you their thoughts on the game. You react to some of that. Maybe we won't go as long as we normally would on, uh, on that post-game periscope, but a lot of Mississippi State fans like hearing what you have to say. So I'll just kind of give you an open mic for a couple of minutes, kind of your reaction, your thoughts, things that jumped out to you from this game today as Mississippi State plays in the Outback Bowl and plays Iowa for the first time ever. Sure. Um, you know, obviously, my, my first thought is that I, I bought into something I probably shouldn't have. And I should have, you know, I, I spent all week talking about Mississippi State defensively and how they were going to hold Iowa to, to, you know, 10 points or less. And 
Defensively, State gives up 199 yards, but three t- three turnovers for Mississippi State, uh, two of which put Iowa on a very short field and allowed them to get touchdowns. They gave up 20 points off of those turnovers. Um, but what I, I bought into that I shouldn't have was State's inability to move the football against quality defenses. They had not done it all year. Uh, in their four losses, those are the four best defenses they played. They didn't score a lot of points. They scored a total of 16 points in three games. So I should have I should have taking that a little bit more seriously because Iowa's defense played very, very well today. Like I said, they forced those turnovers. They, they, they limited MSU to just four and a half yards per carry, and that's a team that's averaging close to six, over six yards per carry. So that's a good job by them. And Nick Fitzgerald was just awful today. I mean, not that he had a whole lot of help from his wide receiving core, but just not a great day for him. 14 of 32, uh, two touchdowns. He did have one touchdown pass, which was more of a, a – it looked more like a pitch than a pass, but they, they gave him the TD pass. Uh, State just never – never once this season did they look good against good competition offensively. Defensively, they're great every time out. But uh, when, when the, the other team's defense could show up and, and do some things, State consistently floundered all year, uh, and that was the case again here today. I mean, uh, I mentioned the turnovers for Iowa. Uh, State forced two turnovers there at the beginning of the second half, and that's where State got its two touchdowns from. Uh, Willie Gay returned a pass uh, down to the, uh, I think, the the three-yard line, and then a a Mark McLaurin fumble turned into a long run, a 33-yard run by Nick Fitzgerald. So both teams got got advantage of their turnovers. Iowa just had the extra one, and that's really the, uh, the difference in the ball game and the difference in, you know, the perception now of where Mississippi State is. It's crazy how one game can do this. But when you take the season as a whole and when you look at this MSU team and, and you realize that's as talented a team as MSU's put on the field in, in quite some time, you're going to have at least two first-round picks off the defense, maybe three because Jonathan Abram continues to shoot up some draft boards. Offensively, yeah. you return you know four starters on the offensive line. You returned a 1,000-yard rusher. You had a fifth-year senior at quarterback. And the offense just completely regressed in year one or Joe Moorhead. So, you know, state state's got a lot of soul searching to do because they gotta figure out what they're gonna be next year. Is Keaton Thompson gonna be that guy? Or are they gonna have to go another way at quarterback? Are they gonna continue to pursue grad transfers or, or any other kind of transfer at quarterback? I don't know the answer to that. We'll find that out in the coming weeks. But all of the uh, there's a there's a real sour taste, I guess you should say, uh, in Mississippi State fans' mouths after this one. You want to text the show? You can do so on the C Spire text line. That number is 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. C Spire's got some cool new things that are coming your way in 2019. Look forward to telling you a little bit more about those as we get into the month of January. We do have a text, and I think it's probably pretty important to to get to this early. It's a question from Mike, who I think is a Mississippi State fan. He says Mike in Oxford. He says, why was Kylan Hill put back in the game after passing out on the sideline? Let, let's, let's do this two ways. Um, first of all, there was a report from Molly McGrath, who was the sideline reporter, and is really good at her job on ESPN, that said he lost consciousness and his eyes kind of rolled back in his head. Uh, okay, so, so take that on the surface for what it's worth. There was also a tweet just a moment ago from Bill Martin, who is the media relations director from Mississippi State, refuting the report from ESPN. He was actually responding to Dan Wolken on Twitter, said that Keaton Thompson never lost, uh, I'm sorry, not Keaton Thompson, Kylan Hill never lost consciousness, and that he was checked out by three physicians and went through concussion protocol before he returned to the game. So those are kind of the two sides of the story that are out there and are causing people to ask the question. I don't know if you saw a replay or not on television. 
He took a shot to the head, probably should have been a targeting call that was not called, and he looked rough on the sidelines. We know that much for sure. Right. Uh, in regards to that play, I did not see a replay. For whatever reason here at the stadium, not a lot of replays shown, period. For I don't know why, but that was the case. Molly McGrath uh, just tweeted out, uh, just a, uh, it looks like about uh, an hour ago, that she spoke with MSU representatives who told her Colin Hill was, quote, woozy on the sidelines but never lost consciousness. So she sort of updated herself from the, uh, the, the initial report she made. I, I have to believe, and I, I you know, Maybe I'm putting myself out here as a homer or whatever, but if he had truly lost consciousness, they would not have put him back in the game. But being a woozy, they must have felt he was okay. If Bill Martin, Bill Martin saying he was checked out by three doctors, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna err on the side of Mississippi State there and say that he was okay to get back in the game. Uh, but. It was definitely a scary situation, and you mentioned uh, targeting not called. Nothing called on Iowa today. The, for the second time this year, uh, an MSU opponent goes a game without getting called for a penalty. No penalties called uh, on the Iowa Hawkeyes today. Um, let's look at some of the individual numbers. Brian's going to be with us for the entirety of this first hour of Sports Talk Mississippi. He'll get into some more of his postgame responsibilities coming up uh, a little bit later. Um you, you look at the numbers, and we'll do this a little more in-depth. Let, let's start, though, with individual numbers. Um, through the air, Nick Fitzgerald today completes less than 50% of his passes. He's 14 of 32, 152 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. But there were two drops as well, um, yeah. two huge drops. Perhaps both would have gone for touchdowns, one where Keaton Thompson is in – um, as a receiver and runs a good route and Fitzgerald hits him in stride and he just dropped it and then obviously later in the ball game uh, you have Stephen Gidry kind of take his eyes off ball bounces off his thigh into the air and it's intercepted those are two huge yeah. plays in this game yeah and if you want to take something else away from Fitzgerald, he had a long pass and catch to uh, Osiris Mitchell that was uh, removed for an offensive pass interference uh, penalty. That would have set MSU up at the one-yard line late in the second quarter. So Fitzgerald made some plays that you you can't you can't put the entire game on Fitzgerald because you're right, those drops are huge. And, and that's not counting two or three other drops that happened today. And that's really been the case for Mississippi State all season. That as, as inaccurate as Fitzgerald has been at times, and that by that same token, State's receivers have not done a, a great job of helping him out. The Gidry play is sort of the play of the ball game, and you know you hate to put the, the one play on, on a player, but he, he the ball hits him directly in, in the chest. If he catches the ball, it's a touchdown, and State takes the lead in the fourth quarter. Instead, it bounces off of him and into the hands of, a, of an Iowa defender, and in doing so, they, they take it out to the 30-yard line. Two plays later, they were in field goal range, and they kick a field goal uh, to take that 27-22 lead. So, yeah, it, it was the same story that we've heard all season with Mississippi State in the passing game. Just no consistency. Fitzgerald miss, missing open receivers, and then when he was finding open receivers, uh, the receivers unable to make some simple plays uh, here and there for Mississippi State. Just just been the story of the season. We've talked about it over and over again, and that's going to be the, the biggest question mark or whatever you want to call it going into to 2019 is how is State going to be better at passing the football? We've got more coming up with Brian Haydad from Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, where Iowa wins 27-22 over Mississippi State in the Outback Bowl. Not the way that Bulldog fans, if you're a Bulldog fan, certainly you wanted 2019 to begin. But we'll continue to break this one down, plus get to some of the other bowl action that is going on right now. It is Sports Talk Mississippi with you, day one of 2019 in the Renaissance Bank Studio. 
Sports Talk Mississippi with you, streaming at supertalk.fm, day one of 2019. Glad to have you along for the ride. Brian Haydad joining us on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team from Tampa, Raymond James Stadium, where earlier today Iowa beat Mississippi State 27-22. Got two other bowl games going on right now. LSU with 10.5 minutes to go in the fourth quarter, leading 37-24 over UCF. And Kentucky and Penn State in a pretty good one in Orlando, 27-21. Cats leading it with five minutes to play over Penn State, but Penn State driving, they've got it inside the Kentucky 20. In fact, at the 17 with second and 10, trying to uh, tie and potentially take the lead in uh, in the ballgame. All right, so, hey, Dad, Mississippi State's defense showed up today, at least for the most part. Now, they, they gave up some plays in this game that you are not accustomed to seeing them. There was a 75-yard touchdown in the game, I think it was a play where Jonathan Abram fell down. Uh, so you, because of that, Iowa was able to take advantage and take it to the house. But when you look at the numbers, you're, you're not supposed to lose a game where the defense holds the other team to minus 15 yards rushing, you're plus seven minutes in time of possession, and you give up fewer than 300 yards passing. Yeah, I mean – 20 carries for negative 15 yards. It's got to be a short list, Richard, of teams that have won, won games with negative yards uh, rushing. And one of yards. 11 on third down. Yeah, didn't convert any third downs. They turned the ball over twice. Uh, State was able to sack the quarterback uh, three times. Seven tackles for loss. I mean, this is just another one of those games, and there's there's two or three of them this year where you look at the defensive side of things and you think, wow, State did plenty to win that game, but the offense just let them down. I mean, the 22 points, like we said, not that you can take them away, but they, they came off of, of short fields. You had a six-yard drive and a 33-yard drive. Not that Iowa didn't have the same thing. Iowa just had, got the extra turnover. But, yeah, you know, I'm sure Bob Shoup is, is disappointed, and if we could talk to him right now, he'd give us the whole, you know, there's a difference between playing well and playing winning football uh, speeches he's given a few times this year. But MSU's defense did everything it could, which it did in every game this season uh, to put MSU in a, p- a position to win. The offense just wasn't able to deliver it. Given the way the game started for Mississippi State's defense, first play that Iowa has, Jeffrey Simmons just blows up a running play in the backfield. They pretty quickly uh, are able to get a sack early in the ballgame. Are you surprised that, that three sacks ended up kind of being the, the final number in that game and, and seven tackles for loss? Well, I mean, the tackles for loss is, is plenty. The, the sacks, you you might be surprised, but Nathan Stanley is a, is a veteran quarterback who understands how to he, – he's got good pocket presence. He understands when it's time to get rid of the football. And a, a, two, a couple of his sacks were just times where the, he was just overwhelmed by a quick blitz or, or whatever. So you know, I'm, not, I'm not overly surprised by that. You know, I, I am surprised that, that Iowa – that 75-yard touchdown caught me off guard. As I, it probably did everybody who was watching the game. State just doesn't give up plays like that. That's the longest – play of the season against Mississippi State um so that was that was surprising to me yes um but but as far as I thought MSU's defensive line I mean they were they were fantastic yet again they they there was no running room for Iowa give Iowa I guess I'd give them you know you talk about being hard-headed 20 carries I wouldn't have run the ball one time if I was Iowa because they just simply couldn't get anything going there I mean their leading rusher had seven yards on the day but Stanley you know 
was able to, to use that running game to hit some plays and play action. Uh, Nick Easley, eight catches, 104 yards, two touchdowns. He was the uh, bowl game MVP. Uh, TJ Hawkinson had three catches for 43 yards. He had back-to-back catches on that possession after the uh, the Gidry uh, deflection turns into an interception. That got uh, Iowa into field goal range. And really, I mean, that's sort of the difference in the game when you, you look at you – know, State was at the uh, – Iowa, I think, 32-yard line with, with on, the, on the final play of the game. If that doesn't happen, the game is 24-22, and you can bring uh, Nick, uh, Jace Christman out for a game-tying 49-yard field goal attempt. So that drive was the key uh, for Iowa to get those, those la- that last little bit of points. Uh, that was really the difference in the game today. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough for Mississippi State's defense because I don't know when they'll ever be better than they were this year. And, and they like I said, in basically every loss – the offense just let them down. I mean, you're, you're willing to, to say Alabama is Alabama, and you just didn't win your day. But when you when you score seven, six, and three in the other games, there's not a whole lot you can say about the offense. Um, glad to have you along this afternoon. If you're traveling, hope that uh, you will be careful on the road. Certainly glad to have you along on New Year's Day, a holiday for many of you this afternoon. You can text the show, the C Spire text line, 601 879 Four three nine five. Kentucky holds Penn State to a field goal try. That's now a field goal game. 27-24. Kentucky about to get the ball back with four minutes and 12 seconds to play. And LSU is trying to put away UCF. They lead 37-24 getting late in that ball game. And LSU's got it deep in um, UCF territory with a chance to, uh, to really make it difficult. And what put snap that? What was it? Twenty? How many games in a row have they won? A bunch. Undefeated last year. I think. Twenty-five. Yeah. It's a uh, heck of a win streak, but uh, people are having fun with that. I, I want to ask you about this. I, I'm kind of seeing on Twitter and maybe a sampling from message boards, Mississippi State fans saying that, well, Mississippi State went with the same game plan when they lost to Kentucky and, and to Florida. Is that just kind of a a quick reaction because it was a loss? Because when I look at the numbers, okay, yes, there were 32 pass attempts in the game for Mississippi State today, but you also had 42 run attempts. Nick Fitzgerald was effective running the football with over 100 yards, and then 18 carries combined, 19 if you want to put Nick Gibson, and then 22 if you want to add Keaton Thompson in there, you know, among running backs or other players not named Nick Fitzgerald. Right. I don't think it's knee-jerk reaction. You know, the 32 passes w- were too many, especially when it was pretty obvious early in the game that Fitzgerald didn't have it today. Uh, but they continued to pass the ball in, in some inopportune times. And then, you know, when you, again, when you see Fitzgerald having more carries than Hill and Williams combined. Now, the Hill and Williams didn't have a great day. They only averaged 3.6 yards per carry between them. But they're never really given the opportunity to, to get going very much. Um, so I don't think it was – to be honest with you, watching this game today, I felt like I was watching those games the Kentucky and the Florida games. State trying to pass the ball, unable to get anything done. You think about Gidry's drop, very similar to the Osiris Mitchell drop uh, against Florida. The only difference is mm. with Mitchell, it didn't end up being a turnover, but it was a you know a easy touchdown that was given away by, by a drop pass. So I don't think it's a knee-jerk reaction at all. I think the game plan today for this game, and honestly, you can throw the LSU game in, in there as well. When State plays against better defenses, this is what the offense looks like, uh, for better or worse. There was also, and, and you know, we talked about the two drops that would have resulted in touchdowns, there was also the catch and the stumble just shy of the goal line yeah. That also could have been a touchdown, and that's a sequence that then you run it three times with Nick Fitzgerald. 
and end up having to kick a field goal there as well. Very similar. We keep going back to these things to the LSU game where State gets a long run down into LSU territory and then at the goal line goes, I think, pass and then run up the middle, run up the middle with Fitz. And then LSU sniffed them out and State has to kick a field goal. And when, you know, getting down to the one yard line, you know, there's always going to be some, some, some questions about what MSU is doing in, in, the, in these plays because of the RPO. So you're not sure, are these design runs? Should Fitzgerald be handing off? What's happening there? It's difficult to make that, that determination, especially when, you know, you're watching it live, and I don't have the benefit of a, of a replay. I can't rewind it real quick. But at that point in the game, it, it's got to be – there's got to be some common sense from Joe Moorhead and staff to say, we're going to give Aris Williams or Kylan Hill a touch here. And it's just going to be, I'm just going to hand them the ball and go up the middle. And if you don't do that, well, you're sort of selling yourself short at that point. And I understand Fitzgerald has, has plunged in a lot of those touchdowns. But, you know, if you want to go first down with him, sure. You want to go second down with him, sure. But third down, you got to change that up a little bit because at that point they're looking for it, and Iowa sniffed it out uh, very, very easily. Um, Nick Fitzgerald, I don't think anybody will disagree with the fact that as a passer he is average uh, maybe average at best. That uh, he's been about a fifty percent passer, you know, this season, and not much better than that for his career. But I think it's a little unfair to heap all of the blame on Nick Fitzgerald. You know, you said earlier didn't have it today. You, you got to figure out a way to more consistently catch the football with you know whatever group of wide receivers you have, and and really two years in a row, you, you can look at this Mississippi State group of receivers and go. Stop dropping the ball. Whatever it is you're doing in practicing catching the ball, there's got to be a new way that's a better way. Well, when you think about Mississippi State and what they did in the offseason to try to improve the receiver position, they brought in you know, Stephen Guidry, who was the nation's number one JUCO last year. They brought in uh, Devontae Jason, who was one of the top receivers in high school from a season ago. Well, Guidry really didn't deliver on any of his recruiting hype. He had a couple of good games, but for the most part, he was very inconsistent. He had some drops. Jason, I'm still trying to figure out why Jason wasn't redshirted this year. Uh, didn't do much of anything this season. Only had a couple of catches. Uh, so th- those... Those things didn't really work out. Now, you did have Osiris Mitchell emerge a little bit, but even he wasn't a consistent every game uh, threat the way State has had in the past with Fred Ross or, or Deronia Wilson. So, yeah, I mean, obviously you can't put everything on Fitzgerald, and Fitzgerald is the reason you won quite a few of the games that you did. But it, to me, it's more about the coaching staff not putting Fitzgerald in, in the best position to succeed because, like you said, Richard, we know that he's not the best uh, – thrower in the world so why are you consistently going back to the pass and not the easy pass the deep ball so often all right let's take a timeout we got more coming up sports talk mississippi in the renaissance bank studio all right boys got a strategy question for you sports talk mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm kentucky leading by three nine seconds on the clock fourth and six Do you punt the football, balls at midfield, or not? Well, they put three seconds. It was at six, but they put three seconds back on the clock. Looks like Kentucky's going to punt. Nine seconds is a long time. Would you consider just snapping it and running it around and then just throwing it up into the air and trying to let the clock expire? Or would you punt? It's risky. It's risky, but... Yeah, they punt. Yeah, I would punt. At that point, you got to trust your defense. you got to trust Josh Allen. There's going to be one second left, and Penn State has the ball at their own 14. So you got, um, 
like, uh, you know, one of those crazy plays coming up. This is this is where Billy Bob would go. You mean you want me to do that stupid thing where I run down the field and look like I'm lost and then catch it and flip it to somebody? Yes, yes, the hook and ladder, Billy Bob. That's the one. That's the one. Sports Talk Mississippi with you streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Brian Haydad from Tampa. He's on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. Larry texts us from the deer stand, and he says, I'm not a state fan, but if I was, I think I'd be disappointed in the three quarterback draws in a row when you had first and goal from the one. Um, we, we talked a little bit about that, Hey Dad. My response to Larry was, I, I just don't love anything where you're out of the shotgun at the one-yard line, especially on first down. And I know that's kind of who a lot of these teams are. You agree with that? Yeah, I agree with it, but Joe Moorhead does not. Uh, Moorhead has been adamant. Uh, there was an article written about this uh, a while back where he got – do you remember how Greg Schiano, when he was at Tampa Bay, would blow up a victory formation? Do you remember that? Where he would – even if he yes. was taking a knee, he would try to yeah, – okay. That happened to Moorhead uh, while he was at Fordham, and he made a personal vow at that point to never, ever go back under center. Under any circumstances, he would always take shot snaps from the shotgun because he didn't ever want that to happen again. So, you know, I, I'm in agreement with you. You know, to me, you know, the best play on the goal line, the Saints have it. Snap the ball to Drew Brees, and he just jumps over and extends his arms, and that's an easy touchdown. Uh, and Nick Fitzgerald being bigger and stronger than Drew Brees, you think it would be an easy call. But it's, it's never going to happen with Joe Moorhead. The Kentucky Wildcats win. Penn State tried to set up one of those plays, but when they flipped it to the guy coming underneath after the catch, they fumbled it, and Kentucky recovered. Benny Snell goes out on top, and the Kentucky Wildcats win 10 games. That's a pretty cool story. Yeah, that, this was a, this was a great year for them. This, I mean, this was their this was a program defining year. They feel like they've been building to it as well. You know, that's why you, you, even with, when Stoops was struggling these past couple of years, going six and six and seven and five, and you were wondering when's it ever going to turn around, they felt like they were building towards this year, and they got there. The question becomes now, similar to what Mississippi State had uh, in twenty fourteen, can they sustain it? Can they do it again next year? Can they build upon this? We'll find out. Yeah. Well, they'll have to do it without Josh Allen, without Benny yeah. Snell, yeah. and you would think they've got to got to find a quarterback. I mean, Terry Wilson, for all that he's done this year, yeah. you know, not terribly efficient. I guess he got better as the, the season went along. Hey, for all the jokes about Kentucky basketball fans or you know Kentucky fans, period, using football as just a stopgap and waiting till basketball season. Mm-hmm. Looks like there are about 40,000 Kentucky fans in Orlando yeah. that might take exception to that. I mean, when you give them something to be excited about, they show up. Yeah. Well, they're just like any other fan base. And, you know, you think about Mississippi State, the, the, that first trip to the Gator Bowl under Dan Mullen in 2010, sold a ton of tickets to that game because it was new and it was exciting to get back into the bowl game, whereas, you know, a few years later, you go back to the, the, the bowl, and you're just, you're, it's, it's, it's the same. You've been there before and things like that. So for Kentucky to go to the Citrus Bowl and have a chance to win 10 games, that's something their fan base hasn't seen a whole lot of. So you know, the, the, it, it's right of them to be supportive of that and, and, and you know, good for them to show up, show up to do it. Uh, what about the crowd today? It was kind of hard to tell on television. It looked like the upper decks were mostly empty, and then the lower levels were generally full, but maybe kind of like scattered full. Like the, there were empties yeah. scattered all throughout it. How big was the crowd? What was the split like? They, they announced it at forty thousand and some change. Uh, I thought the split was was 
maybe 60-40 Iowa. Good good MSU crowd, though. The Most of the uh, lower bowl was filled, and the uh, the corner of the end zone over there, that's, that's where the tickets for the university would have come through. Uh, Iowa had a few more fans in, in the lower bowl, but by and large, if there was a, a an advantage, it wasn't a, a huge one for either team. I thought it was a, a good crowd. They were into the game despite, you know, an early kickoff after uh, New Year's Eve. And, uh, you know, good game all around from an entertainment standpoint for sure. Yeah, maybe 15,000 or so state fans, that reasonable guess? That's, that's yeah, that's, at least. I would say at least okay. on that, yeah. All right. Brian Haydad with us on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. So, you know, asking this question today maybe is a little premature, but it's kind of where people go, especially after a loss. And yeah. the question is, where, where do you go from here? Uh, you, you said earlier one of the most talented football teams that Mississippi State's had in a long time. Uh, you, you might say one of the most talented ever w- when you think about draft picks and seniors and you know production from from individuals. You finish the year eight and five, and going to have to replace a bunch of people next year. Going to have to have a new yeah. starting quarterback. Going to replace one of the most dominant defensive linemen in the country in in um, Jeffrey Simmons. Got to replace Montez Sweat. Uh, Jonathan Abram has turned out to be huge on the defensive side of the ball. So what's next for Mississippi State? That's the question, right? And now this defense next year, when you look at what they bring back, I think they're going to be just fine. You know, they won't be the, the nation's best defense like I feel like they've been this year, but they're going to be very good. Um, they should be a top 25, top 30 defense next season with guys like Chauncey Rivers, Kobe Jones, uh, Lee Autry. The linebacking core will be one of the best in the SEC with Errol Thompson, Leo Lewis, and Willie Gay. Uh, Brian Cole returned from injury. I thought he was playing really well when he got hurt. Jaquarius Landry's back, Cam Dantzler back, Marty Smitherman back. So you got a lot to work with defensively. Now offensively, Obviously, Kylan Hill and Nick Gibson will, will return at the backfield. You do lose Elton Jenkins and uh, Deion Calhoun, but you return three starters on the offensive line. And, and guys like Tyree Phillips and Tommy Champion, they played a lot of reps this year, so you should be okay there. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that most of the receivers are back. So you have, you got another year to develop those guys. The question yeah. is all about the quarterback position for Mississippi State next year. Will Keaton Thompson emerge as that guy? Will Mississippi State continue to pursue a grad transfer? Will, will they go after a guy like Jalen Hurts if he decides to leave Alabama? I don't know. That's just speculation. But they got to find that guy, and that guy has to be able to, to deliver more in the passing game that they got this season. If that doesn't happen, you're going to be looking at a team. You think about this year going eight and five if the defense hadn't been as good as it was you might have easily been six and six going into the into the bowl game so if that defense takes a step back next year and you don't improve any offensively that's sort of where you're looking so this offseason is very key for Mississippi State they have to find somebody who can improve them in the passing game if Keaton Thompson is the quarterback next year is he Nick Fitzgerald 2.0 you know, that's that's a great question because when you look at what he's done so far, he's only completing 48% of his passes here at Mississippi State. There's so much talk on social media and on message boards. Like, Got to bring in Keaton. He's the better passer. And I'm just – I want to talk to those people. Like, where are you seeing that? I mean, yeah, he was great in high school, but I can list a thousand guys that were great in high school. So – you know, where are you getting that from? He's got to find a way to do that. He's he's not going to be as good a runner as Fitzgerald. Let's get that out of the way because Fitzgerald, I mean, the all-time leading rushing quarterback in SEC history. He also set another record today, most ever 100-yard games by a, an SEC quarterback with 21. He's not going to be as good a runner 
So he's got to be better at a, as a passer for you to be any better offensively. And so that's going to be the, the, the tail of the tape this offseason. And Nick Fitzgerald uh, Fitzgerald's career comes to a close responsible for 101 touchdowns. Yeah. Had it, his career will forever be one that people look at and just – you don't know what to say about him because – had some big wins, but then he had some games like today. I mean, and then there are going to be people who say, look, if Fitzgerald had been a better passer, if, if State had had a better passer, State would have won a lot more games. But then there are going to be some people who say, you know, the game State won, Nick Fitzgerald had a huge, huge hand in that. And, and you know, it wasn't his fault. So Fitzgerald, and, I think we've hey, talked Dad, about it a few times. Yeah. I think it's also worth remembering that you're talking about the guy who had to follow up the most popular player in school history. Which you never want to be, man. You don't ever want to be the guy that follows the guy. Uh, but that's what Nick Fisher had to, to step into. I, I say without any hesitation to me, one of the most polarizing players in Mississippi State history. There are people who love Nick Fitzgerald, and there are people who just don't like him, and they're glad to, that, that today was his last day. I don't, I, I don't you know, fall in between – Either one of them. I think Fitzgerald had his had his highs and his lows, um, but definitely a, a player that will elicit strong opinions from MSU fans when you ask about him in the years to come. Well, and it's really crazy when you, you think about that. And, and I guess I understand why people are on both sides of that argument. But 101 touchdowns responsible for, and what three straight bowl games as the starting yeah. quarterback, and yeah. the all-time leading rusher at the quarterback position. In SEC history, not in Mississippi yeah. State history, in SEC yeah. history, he rushes for over 3,600 yards. Uh, there aren't many running backs that have done that. Um, yeah. not, not that many. A rather inauspicious start to the Rose Bowl game. Um, let's see, Ohio State went false start, no gain, no gain, sack, punt. And then Washington uh, got three plays on their first drive. So two offensive possessions, three yards, two punts to start the game. <laughs> Maybe Ohio State's got it going a little bit now. Man, how badly do you guys want to go to the Rose Bowl at some point, just as an innocent bystander? I'd like, I mean, I'd like to go. I, I think it's a bucket list thing in sports for sure. Whether it's the stadium itself or the festivities before it, and would you go to the parade? Would you would you wake up early on New Year's Day and go to the parade before going to the game? How early are we talking? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's some that for prime seating get up really early, and you know, jump in right there so that they can get you know best seat in the house. I would assume that you could get somewhere along the parade route going at, I don't know, nine or ten in the morning. I'd probably do it. Not a big parade guy, but I guess while you're out there, might as well. Probably depends on whether or not you get kids with you or not. I'm probably not staying for the entire two or three hours either. I didn't know it was that long. Yeah, I mean, it appears to be. I mean, it lasts for a long time on television. Borky, where is the Rose Bowl on your bucket list of things to do in sports? It's number one. I have a feeling that... Really? Yes. One. I have a feeling that I would get emotional like during the National Anthem and the flyover... Being in the Rose Bowl. Well, so, hold on a second. If you don't so get that... a, if you don't get emotional inside that stadium during the national anthem with a B two bomber, a stealth bomber flying over, then you have no, you have no <laughs> pulse. 
Yeah, I think that would be my one. And then the World Cup, which is coming to the United States in six years or ten years, uh, would be my number two. No Kentucky Derby for you? No, I, horse racing is fine, but I would much rather go to the World Cup or go to the Rose Bowl than be around a bunch of people with stupid hats and watch a two-minute long race. Well, I mean, forgive a tired would, radio a, topic, but, but what else is on the list for you? Oh, I've got to think about that. Um, Rose Bowl for sure, one. World Cup, two. Um, I would like to go to a, an outdoor classic. And it was actually, it happened today, the, the hockey game that they play outside in a football stadium. Oh, the winter deal. I got you. Uh, yeah, yeah the, the winter classic, not the outdoor classic. Uh, just a unique event that I would like to see. That would be my top three, I think. Hmm. Because like the, the NBA Finals or, or something like that, there's seven of them every year. You know what I mean? And in the yeah. Super Bowl, it feels so corporate that I, I don't know if it's something that I just have to go see because... It'll be in Mercedes-Benz Stadium or something, a place that I could go to any time. The, the Rose Bowl game happens once a year, and it's in the most iconic venue in, in football, really. In American sports. In American sports. So I think that's above the Super Bowl for me. What else is on your list, Rippy? Army-Navy and then a Sunday afternoon at Augusta. Have you been to Augusta at all? No, I have not. I hear you. I know you've been told this a hundred times. Television doesn't do it any sort of remote justice. It is the most perfect place. I, I, most perfect place I've ever been. Everything was in order. Everything was, was perfect. The grass, I mean, the, the concession stands, everything about it was perfection. I've heard, in terms of TV not doing it justice, I've heard the main thing is the undulation of the whole place. Yeah, like you, you don't realize you don't how hilly it is. TV. I guess you can kind of see it with the way they hit the ball in the fairway sometimes. Yeah. But, but, like, six green looks like an elephant. They, they put the green over top of an elephant. Seriously. And the, the fairway bunker's on five. If a player is in it, you cannot see him at all. You can't see him. For, for me, it's Rose Bowl, Kentucky Derby, and Army-Navy. I mean, I think those are the top three for me. I want to see a Yankees-Red Sox game, interestingly enough, at Fenway. Um, I think at some point I would like to see Ohio State-Michigan, but it's not like way up there on my list. How about Duke-UNC and Cameron? That would be something. Yeah, that's one I'd like to do at uh, at some point along the way. Um it has absolutely nothing to do with today. I want I tell you something that has climbed way, way, way up my list. Probably top five or six or seven. I want to go to Iowa City and watch an Iowa Hawkeyes football game because I want to go and cry my eyes out and wave to those kids on the top floor of the children at Iowa Children's. I actually funny you say that. I showed my we were watching the game earlier on the couch. I showed my girlfriend the video of that and Rinaldi had her in tears within like 30 seconds. Yeah, it doesn't take long. It's kind of uh, kind of what he does. Uh, Ohio State has taken a 7-0 lead over Washington. They marched down the field, stick it in the end zone. Final game coaching, allegedly, of uh, Urban Meyer's career. We'll see. Do you guys still believe that he will come back in a couple of years, or you think this is actually it? Well, the puff piece that ESPN did about him today on College Game Day made me think that he's coming back. 
Why are I they was, doing that, by the way? It's awkward, isn't it? It's it's extremely awkward, but ESPN, I mean, they did it during the Michigan game. The entire game was redemption for Urban Meyer, and that's the second puff piece about him I've seen in, in the same number of weeks. Why are they Paul Feinbaum that? this morning, um, that b- before SEC Nation started, they had the um, most of that crew on, um, oh, what's Mike Greenberg's show? The one they get did up. from the, yeah, Get Up. And they were talking about, Laura Rutledge asked the question, Jordan Rogers responded, and then Marcus uh, Spears responded, then Feinbaum goes, well, hold on a second now. Yeah, I mean, maybe it is the last game or not for uh, Urban Meyer, but we're glossing over the fact that he's a liar and what he did was completely wrong, and we wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for him covering things up for Zach Smith. And I know Feinbaum sometimes is like a reaction guy. I, I get that. But somebody breathing a little bit of truth and a little bit of reminder of what this season has been, I thought was kind of refreshing. I To your original question of whether he's coming back or not, I was originally kind of in line with Borky's thinking, but this whole idea that he's going to teach a class and then join their athletic department, like generally when coaches do that, they kind of you know, stay in that kind of role. I mean, I guess it... Like fade off into the sunset. Yeah, if you put him in the athletic department or the administration in some way and he's teaching a class, it seems like he would like most of them just kind of st- remain there. I mean, it's not unheard of for him to come back. What would be interesting is do you think he'd try the NFL? Mm. I think it's a health be the year to do it. It would. Yeah. Don't you think the health issues, though, are real? See, if he doesn't come back to coaching, it's one of two things. It's one, the health issues are real, or two, there's more, and if he takes another job, it'll be uncovered. What will be uncovered? More. There's more to whatever happened with Zach Smith and in that situation. I don't know, but if he's healthy and he doesn't come back to coaching, that would be my first guess as to why well, not. But he's not healthy. I mean, he has a cyst on his brain. Well, he wasn't healthy at Florida either, and a year later he... Yeah, that, well, but let's be real. That was a different deal. Wasn't it? I mean, it was heart-related issues, but right. there was other stuff that was no, going I, on I'm there. No, I'm saying if he's time. not. If if later on it's, oh, Urban Meyer's healthy again, and he doesn't come back to coaching, I think that's why. Well, I mean, I heard somebody say the other day that the, the only way to relieve the pain and the pressure from the cyst is to drill another hole in his skull, and it's really painful, and he doesn't want to go through that again. And so the next best way to relieve the pain and relieve the pressure is to eliminate stress and you know from your life and not coaching is the best way to do that i mean maybe it's just like a pain tolerance thing i don't know anyway ohio state leading seven to nothing over washington in the rose bowl about to kick off to them all of this kind of got started as we were talking about you know great settings i mean the whole san gabriel's over the the horizon the blue sky does it ever rain at the rose bowl it was cold there this morning. It was in the 30s this morning in Pasadena. Yeah, Fowler said kickoff temperature was 60. That's pretty spectacular. Does that matter at all for the national championship game, that the uh, the high temperature in Santa Clara is going to be in the mid-50s? That doesn't matter, does it? That's perfect, nah. right? Especially when you're playing ball. You can't tell when it's 50. 
Yeah. Um, there is some interesting story, or there are some interesting storylines that are developing, and they may be the most least, or they may be the least surprising thing that you could imagine related to the college football national championship game being played in Northern California. I mean, does anybody see a problem with playing the college football national championship th- game in suburban San, Fr- San Francisco? Other than the fact that they can't show up and watch their own team play, let alone... Yeah, let, let, let's take a peek at that story when we come back. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Burns. He's, going He's going the distance! He's Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm with you on Tuesday afternoon, January 1st, 2019. Happy New Year. Hope you had a great night, uh, a little bit of time with some family or with some friends or just all by yourself hanging out and getting a good night's sleep last night. Most likely you are off today and uh, hope you're enjoying a little bit of time off. A lot of football to consume. We had three games earlier today, all three involving SEC teams you got another one coming up tonight with Texas and Georgia Rose Bowl going on right now. Ohio State with an early 7-0 lead over the Washington Huskies. Iowa beat Mississippi State 27-22. to LSU won in the Fiesta Bowl over UCF 40-32. to And Kentucky held off Penn State 27-24 earlier today as well. So, you want to text the show, you can. 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. That's the C Spire text line. C Spire, customer inspired. So, story came from AL.com earlier today. It was written by Michael Casagrande. And his lead was this. A year ago, tickets to the national title game were approaching Super Bowl prices. Alabama versus Georgia in Atlanta was just the perfect storm for the resale market. It was almost too convenient. So with that context, Monday's Alabama Clemson 4 might as well be played on the moon, and the ticket prices reflect that. The the get-in-the-door price last year, cheapest seat in the building at Mercedes-Benz for Alabama Clemson, 1,700 smackaroos. You can get in the door this year to Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara for $245. And that's actually trending down, too. So it was, I guess, Saturday when the game was announced, what two teams were going to make it. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of 650 bucks. Mm-hmm. And it dropped down about a hundred bucks uh, yesterday, and now it's down in the two hundreds today. This story at AL.com by Michael Casagrande uh, quotes Jesse Lawrence, founder of Ticket IQ. How about this quote? It will be interesting to see if it's completely sold through. I think it will be dicey. I think there's a pretty good chance it doesn't sell out, or there's empty seats. He was asked if he thought there was a Groundhog Day effect, the fact that it was the same matchup that you had seen recently. He said, I actually think it has less to do with fatigue than it does just distance. Last year, you could make just as much of a case that there was just as much fatigue for Alabama, but it was the most expensive national championship ticket that we've ever tracked. Obviously, it was in Georgia's backyard, but if you look at the year before, 
also it was $1,700 to get in the door. He says, I think it's as simple as distance. I think people are happy to pay for the ticket if it's close and even pay up. But I think the combination of travel, hotel, and all of that matters. And I think that's a good point. If you live in Tuscaloosa, then you're probably not driving. If you live in Clemson, South Carolina, you're probably not driving. Now, there are a few people that will, right? People that don't like planes, people that are retired and have motorhomes. It's like a 36-hour drive. Yeah, but, I mean, if you're retired and you got a motorhome and, you know, you, you, you left Birmingham... It's a heck of a guess. 38-hour drive, 2,560 miles. See how far it is from Miami. Because, see, that's the reality. for there, There's somebody. There is an Alabama fan there. And I bet there's a Clemson fan that, that went from Dallas straight to, straight to San Francisco as well. But think about that. If you went to Miami as a Bama fan, you pulled out of Mountain Brook, um, what, two days after Christmas? You left on the 27th for the games that were being played on the 29th, drove your your, your million-dollar motorhome down to Miami Gardens, saw Alabama win, spent the night, knew that Santa Clara was up next, and started driving. How far? From Miami to Santa Clara. 45 hours of consecutive driving, 3,100 miles. Holy cow. That's a long way. Man, you could make a really fun trip out of that, though. I mean, to, to do it right, you, you would stop, or you could stop. You'd go through Orlando, uh, down, I mean, all the way down to Pensacola, stop in New Orleans, go over to Houston and San Antonio. You could make a lot of stops along the way. Phoenix? You, if you make that many stops, I'm not sure you're going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> There's just, there are options uh, to enjoy your road trip anyway. That drive Zoe. through West Texas from San Antonio to El Paso, though, that would be the most miserable stretch of driving in the history of the world. If you did it, you're saying from Miami to Santa Clara? Yeah. You would feel the effects of that road trip before you got out of the state of Florida. You're probably right. But, but, you're nine, ten hours before you get out of the state, depending on how you go, which is crazy. Sure. No, I, I get that. But but think about it this way. I mean, think about it. You're you're retired, you like to travel, and you have a million dollar motorhome. You're you're driving a Prevo motorhome. You're an Alabama fan. You have no time constraints on getting home. And so you leave Miami after that playoff game, or maybe you skip the playoff game. Maybe you're just going to Santa Clara. And you can take five days to get there, six days to get there and still be Three days out from the game? Oh, I'm Would not, you make that trip? Yeah, I'm not necessarily saying I wouldn't do it. I was just more kind of in awe at the sheer distance. Like the the well, 45 I'm, hours, Borky said? Yeah, 45 hours of consecutive driving. Oh, Lord. Uh, that would be fun, though, if you had a the right RV, like ones with dish and, and Wi-Fi and stuff on it, and like six people, where you, you drive for two hours and do two-hour intervals, you could actually kind of enjoy that. See, I don't... Um, I don't think you want to make that trip with six people, unless four of the people are staying in a hotel everywhere you go. 
had just enough experience on motorhomes now. Uh, my my in laws have one to realize that that's a really neat way to travel for two people. Now you you can travel with more people in the motorhome, but when it comes time to shut it down for the night, the whole let's make pallets and sleep on the couch, and you got two people in the bed and two on the couch, and you know one on an inflatable mat. That's a different deal now. That that's that's not ideal. I don't think. Anyway, it's better. There was than a bit of a three thousand dollar plane flight. Yeah. So what? It was a thousand bucks a pop for. Um, if you wanted to fly Birmingham to uh, to San Francisco, and then you got to get to Santa Clara, which isn't cheap. I mean, that's that's like a seventy dollar Uber ride from the San Francisco <laughs> airport to Santa Clara. Maybe it's an expensive high, trip. For, when we landed in San Francisco and took an Uber into the city, it was fifty five bucks. All right. So recent national championship games. What was the get in the door price? Here you go. 2011 Auburn, Oregon. And that game was in Phoenix, right? Is that right? Or was that Rose Bowl? That was Rose Bowl. Okay, that was at the Rose Bowl. Get in the no, door price. No, 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 I'm wrong. I'm sorry. The, the Oregon Florida State game was in the Rose Bowl. Uh, okay, so $1,750 in 2011. Alabama, LSU, and New Orleans in 2012 went to that game. I didn't pay this, but the get-in-the-door price, $1,125. Alabama, Notre Dame, 2013, $849. I would have thought that that one actually would have been more. Florida State, Auburn, $251. So that was not an expensive ticket, relatively speaking. 2015, Ohio State, Oregon, $317. 2016 Alabama Clemson that was in Glendale, two hundred two dollars. That one was cheap, as these tickets go. But the last two years, Alabama Clemson 2017, one thousand seven hundred thirty seven dollars. Last year one thousand seven hundred fifty two dollars, and then this year, you can get in the door for less than three hundred bucks. Kind of crazy. And a three hundred dollar ticket is an expensive ticket. Yeah, and you know the people of the Bay Area are just lining up to watch two Southern teams and paying three hundred dollars to do it. Well, I mean that's the other thing. You're playing it on Monday night with a five o'clock, five thirty local time kickoff in a place where traffic is horrendous and people don't care about college football. Yeah, I did a Berkeley radio segment last year for Ole Miss one out there, some local station, and the guy said, I quote, college football something we do when the surf is bad. Hmm. Well, you could try surfing while you're there if you wanted to do that. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online at supertalk.fm with you on New Year's Day. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Scott Rippey in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Scott Rippey, glad to have you along. Sports Talk brought to you by Mississippi Land Bank. Online, mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. 
You got the uh, the fever to build a dream house, or maybe it's not a fever. Maybe it's maybe it's far more thought out than oh, I've got the itch to build a new house. Maybe you've been planning and looking forward to it and saving up for the opportunity to build that dream house on the pers- perfect piece of property. And you know you got to get financing to do that. Well, why not use someone in North Mississippi who's been financing land and everything associated with land for a hundred years? At Mississippi Land Bank, they know the lay of the land. They know what you're going through. They can help you through the process. They'll get you the best financing rates available. And they are some of the finest people that you are will ever deal with in your life in any situation. I say that without hesitation, not because I'm supposed to, but because I've been dealing with people at Mississippi Land Bank for coming up on a decade. It's been nearly that long. And uh, they're just great to deal with. Good people. MSLandBank.com. You can find branch locations all across North Mississippi. You can also find a telephone number to give them a call and chat with them about what it is that you need. All right, time right now for the college football fix. College football fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to BuyFordNow.com. You can see everything that Ford has to offer. Cars, trucks, vans, SUVs. They've just wrapped up the year-end sales event, but that doesn't mean there are not great deals to be had. Check them out. You can find all of those deals online at BuyFordNow.com. But more than that, go to your local Mississippi Ford dealer. Talk to them about what it is that you're looking for. Test drive one of their great cars, trucks, vans, or SUVs. Fall in love and take one home with you today. Although today's probably not the best day, probably more like tomorrow or the day after that. Scoreboard. Bunch of college football games today. And more coming up tonight. Right now in the Rose Bowl, you have Ohio State leading 14-3 over the Washington Huskies. Ohio State coming off the uh, the season-ending win against Michigan, the win in the Big Ten Championship game. They are not part of the college football playoff, but they have not been unmotivated so far today. Ohio State up 14-3. to Earlier today in the Outback Bowl, Mississippi State loses in their season finale to Iowa. 27-22 to was the final. We talked a lot about that game. We Talked about it some with Brian Haydad in the first hour. He was with us for the entire first hour of the show from Raymond James Stadium in uh, in Tampa. And I think this is one of those games where if you watched it and you were a casual fan, it didn't feel like it was the most interesting game ever. Just because of the way the two teams played. If you were a fan of Mississippi State, then I think today is a game where you walked away more than anything frustrated. You know, offensively, you missed opportunities. There were nine penalties for 80 yards. There were a handful of drops. Nick Fitzgerald didn't have a great day throwing the football. He was 14 of 32, but if, if let's say there were seven drops in the game, maybe six, if four of those drops are completions, then he's 16 of, uh, I'm sorry, he's 18 of 32. He's over 50%. He throws for 250 yards and he throws for three touchdowns. Just if one of those drops is a completion, they win the game if it's the right one. Yeah, most likely. I mean, they lose by five. If you, if you give them a touchdown there, then you win by two. You don't know what else happens in the game. I certainly get what you're saying on that front. But, 
you just got to have some receivers step up and make some plays for Mississippi State. I, I Look, you, you know what you've got with Nick Fitzgerald as a passer. Just an average thrower of the football. Never been a great passer. Great runner. Good leader. Hard player. Plays hard. Plays physical. Just not a great thrower. Richard from Wigan says, if my aunt had dot, 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 dot. Yeah, I, I get it. I, I get that. But that's what we do, Richard. After games, when teams win, we go back and we look at why. And when teams lose, you go back and you look at why. And you go, well, if this had happened differently, then maybe a loss would have been a win. And that's what we're doing some this afternoon. But but I would think that the overwhelming emotion, at least as time goes on, would be frustration. There was a lot of anger immediately after that game, if Twitter and the message boards are any indication. But I would think overall frustration would be the biggest emotion for Mississippi State fans after that game today. I think you kind of nailed it. Because as an outsider and listening to Haydad talk for the last four months, it seemed like a culmination or a microcosm or a shell of all the biggest things that frustrated State fans, right? Like you had inefficient throws from the quarterback, bad receiver play, and some questionable play calling, you know, particularly around the goal line, and then you squandered another really, really nice defensive effort. And this was supposed to be the season. I mean, we talked about it in the offseason. It was the buzz at media days, remember? This was the year that everybody pointed to as this time they will compete with and beat Alabama. This time they can go to the SEC championship. And on top of that, they had the number one defense in college football. They're number one in scoring. They were top five in most meaningful statistical categories on defense in the most difficult league in the country and lost five games. So you had what you expected on one side of the ball and just no adaptation, no imagination, poor execution on offense five times this year when it was supposed to be the year. And... This game was just, as you said, a microcosm. The one example of the problem that plagued the team all year long when everybody thought going into this year, this was that team. You look at Rippy, you look like you got something to say. No, I was just, this probably, it, it didn't matter because State ended up getting the ball back, but one of the more mystifying decisions was the punt on fourth and six inches beforehand, you know, on the on their, I guess, penultimate possession for yeah, State. Yeah, because just under five Iowa minutes a, left in the game, and it was fourth and very short, and they had one timeout left. And because Iowa... But and, they and, got the ball back with a minute and a half to play. They were, but you were two yards away from them never getting another chance at it. It's true. It's a good point. 27-22, the final in that ball game. Fiesta Bowl, LSU 40-32 to over UCF. LSU finishes the year 10-3. and UCF goes 12-1, and snapped a 25-game win streak for UCF. Joe Burrow was good today, really good. 21-34, 394 yards, four touchdowns. He was picked off once. Nick Brosette had 117 yards rushing. Uh, all four of LSU's offensive touchdowns came through the air. They did not have a rushing touchdown in the game. Uh, Justin Jefferson, two touchdown catches. Jamar Chase had one. Derek Dillon had one as well. Has LSU got to get better at receiver? I mean, it, you, you think about LSU, and for a long time they had inept quarterback play, largely. 
but they always had household names at wide receiver, elite guys, guys that went on to the NFL. I don't feel like they've got elite names, household names right now at the wide receiver position. Maybe that changes through recruiting. We'll see. Daryl Mack for UCF went 11 of 30. Obviously, Mackenzie Milton not being there for UCF has an effect on the game. Does it? Is it the difference in UCF winning and losing? I, I don't know. But starting quarterback Daryl Mack completes a third of his passes for 97 yards, one touchdown, and one pick. Um, Greg McRae for UCF had 81 yards rushing and a touchdown on the ground. LSU had a couple of players ejected in the ballgame. Um, overall team numbers, LSU rolls up 555 yards of offense and gives up only 250. It's pretty impressive. And then also, you had Kentucky and Penn State. And what a game that was. What a win it was for Kentucky. Kentucky had a pretty big lead in that game, and they had to hang on for dear life at the end. But they were able to do that, and they iced it, ultimately, with Benny Snell. Terry Wilson, their quarterback, goes 9-15 of for 121 yards. No touchdowns, but he was not picked off either. Benny Snell, 26 carries, 144 yards, two touchdowns in his final game in a Kentucky uniform. Final game wearing that chrome Kentucky helmet that Borky did not like. It's awful. Trace McSorley for Penn State, 17 of 33, 246 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. He was also the leading rusher for Penn State. Nittany Lions finished the year 9 and 4. Kentucky finishes the season 10 and 3. Despite being outscored 17 to nothing in the fourth quarter, they win it 27 to 24. That's your college football fix driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. More coming up with you as we continue Sports Talk Mississippi, New Year's Day in the Renaissance Bank Studio. that popped up over the weekend. It was written by John Canzano at the Oregonian. Covers not only the um, the Oregon Ducks, but he covers the Pac-12. And the lead in the story was want to own a piece of a major college football conference? There may be one for sale shortly. Huh? Pac-12 is interested in selling a 10% stake in the conference to private equity investors. The Pac-12 would put all of its commercial assets, media rights, merchandising, distribution agreements, etc., into a new entity called Pac-12 Nuco. An investor would then buy a 10% stake at a price of $500 million. The Pac-12 would then distribute the money to its schools. If you're talking about an equal distribution of the money, then each of the Pac-12 schools would get $41.5 million. I don't know if that would be like a one-time distribution or if they would spread that out to offset the difference the Pac-12 schools are getting in comparison to some of their Power 5 conference counterparts or not. 
SB Nation wrote a piece, and, and I thought this was pretty fascinating, of the questions that come along with this idea. All right, so first of all, if you are looking at $500 million for a 10% stake, that that means you're you're valuing the Pac-12 at somewhere between 5 and 8 billion dollars as a conference. Okay? So that's your starting point. So my first question and this is not one that the Pac-12 or that the the story at SB Nation really raised if the Pac-12, let's just call it 5 billion for for easy terms, is worth 5 billion dollars, what's the value of the SEC? What's the value of the Big Ten? What's the value of the ACC? Would you say SEC, just sticking with the five number, would be $25 billion, five times more valuable than the Pac-12? No. I wouldn't go that high. Why not? Um, I don't think the, the revenue numbers support that, that type of evaluation. I mean... You, you, you can't necessarily value something just based on passion. You, you've got to be able to value it based on the ability to get a return for investors. And that's one of the interesting questions that's raised. I, I get what you're, you're saying. I mean, far more successful, et cetera. Well, I'm, I'm thinking at it from a viewership standpoint. There's more money to be made in that regard. There is the distribution the, the conference network, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but the the difference in the payout right now between Pac-12 schools at about $31 million a year and SEC schools at, what, closing in on $50 million a year? $45 million? I mean, I, I, I just don't think a 5X valuation works. But it's significantly more. I mean, if you told me that it was twice as valuable... I would agree with you on that point. Would Pac-12s, or why would Pac-12 schools be interested in this? The Pac-12 network has not generated revenue, not the way other schools or other conferences have generated revenue. A a $41.5 million lump sum injection of capital would be big. Now, how schools would use that remains to be seen. Um, why would an investor be interested in investing in the Pac-12? This is an interesting question. The story here says it's trickier to think of the appeal for an investor. The idea of buying a percentage of future earnings is not a totally unique concept in sports, but nothing similar to this arrangement has been done before in college. And it's not clear at this point if investors would view this as a high upside investment or just a silly idea because there are a lot of many a lot of places you can invest your money you're not going to invest that type of money whether it's a single investor or it's like multiple investors you're not making that kind of an investment without having a pretty clear idea of what kind of a return you might get and borky your point a second ago about the tv deals there's an assumption that's being made when you make a five to eight billion dollar valuation of the Pac-12 
that the television money is going to continue, that ESPN and Fox are going to continue to pay these exorbitant rights fees in a landscape that is changing dramatically. There's always going to be value in live sports because it's kind of like the ultimate reality show. It's, it's real. It's not like fake reality. But given ESPN's financial state, losing subscribers and losing revenue over the last couple of years, are they going to continue to be able to pay the rights fees that they're currently paying? See, I think that's the, the biggest question in sports media is are we in a rights fees bubble? And if so, when does that bubble pop? Well, and But the counter to that, I guess, would be live sports is the only thing that's valuable from a national scale in sports media anymore. I mean, you see, and part of it is, is bad business moves, but, I mean, look at the ratings numbers for these morning shows on ESPN now. They're investing millions of dollars into them, and they don't do well. Right. Non-live sports national TV does not do well anymore, unless you're Scott well, Van Pelt. And, and, and if you're valuing the Pac-12 or any other league at whatever the number is, I mean, $5 billion, $8 billion, whatever we're talking about for the Pac-12, and then you're trying to come up with, okay, what a, what's the number for the other conferences, can you really come up with an accurate valuation when you know that you've got ongoing lawsuits about players being paid that costs are going to continue to go up is the amount of money you're going to continue to make. They, they, they raise the point in this article. They say, let's say that the valuation for the Pac-12 is right, and they get a $500 million infusion of cash. Would a bunch of cash coming in one time really change anything? Does an extra $41 million that's still going to leave you behind the other conferences in the amount of money you're bringing in and the amount of money you're distributing on an annual basis, does it really change anything? Probably not. My question in all of this, though, is let's pretend that they find an investor. Wouldn't that give the players a case to say that they're employees because you're selling shares of the conference like a business? I mean, the, nobody owns shares of the NCAA, right? It's a collection of schools. That's what conferences are as well. But once you start selling shares of your collection of schools, aren't the people that now work, air quotes, for that conference employees? What, what, if, this, what if this happens and it works? And the ACC and the Big Ten and the, the SEC look at it and go, Hey, that's not a bad idea, but you know what? We're worth two times what they're worth, and then schools in the SEC get a $100 million infusion of capital, and the Big Ten gets a $100 million capital infusion for each of its schools. You mean the playing, what have you done? The playing field would remain the exact same. What about this? This is a really fascinating question. Okay, if you invest in a business, you've now got say-so in the way that it runs, to a certain degree. Now, the Pac-12 says that, these would be non-voting shares. But you expect a return on investment, right? You, you pump $500 million into any company, you expect to get your money back and make a profit. And what are the ways that you make profits in businesses? 
Well, you trim the fat. So when water polo is causing you to lose money in the Pac-12, when men's volleyball or women's track and field is causing you to lose money, what happens when the investor says, you got to get rid of these sports? How's the Pac-12 going to respond to that? And what about when somebody wants their money back? You invest $500 million. At some point, you're able to get your money back out of it. Well, what if the revenues haven't gone up? You've already distributed that $500 million investment, and now your investor wants their $500 million back. Where's that money coming from? Seems like a bad idea. There are more questions than there are answers. It's a desperation move. The Pac-12 is being left behind right now, and it's a, it would be a desperation move. Larry Scott has pitched this idea to the ADs and presidents of the Pac-12, and they've had multiple conference calls to talk about it, talk about how it could work, what the, the issues are. I don't know if we get there. By the way, the SB Nation story said, should Sanford just reach into its huge endowment and buy the Pac-12 and decide all of this for itself? <laughs> Sports Talk Mississippi. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.